You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In April 1630, a group of Puritans on board the Arbella set sail from England to the New World to establish a holy commonwealth, what would become the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They did this believing they had a charter not just for the establishment of the Massachusetts Bay Company, but ultimately a charter from God to create a city on a hill. The first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, picking up on the imagery of Matthew 5.14, put it this way in his sermon delivered on the trip, quote, We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and a glory, that men shall say of succeeding plantations, May the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. Well, a holy commonwealth, a city upon a hill radiating the glory of God for all the world to see, not bad for a life goal. Now, some would say the experiment failed, while others would say this sermon marked the beginning of American exceptionalism as U.S. presidents beginning in the 20th century began to invoke Winthrop's city on a hill language to illustrate the exceptional nature of the nation. But more than any national exceptionalism, the Puritans believed in God's exceptionalism. They were determined to live for the glory of God first and foremost, even as at times they, like us, failed miserably. Well, do the Puritans generally, and the American Puritans in particular, have anything to teach the church today? Well, we certainly think so, which is why we've brought in a special guest to join us today. And Michael, why don't you introduce to us uh, our special guest? Yes, it's uh, great to have with us today Dr. Uh, Dustin Benj, who is the provost of Union School of Theology, which is based in Wales, as well as in Oxford. Uh, Dr. Benj earned his uh, PhD at Southern, so where both you and I, Mike, uh, teach. Uh, he did his uh, doctoral thesis on the Angleology of Jonathan Edwards, actually found uh, subjects that uh, had not been touched on in Edwardsian scholarship and did a very fine job of that. Uh, he is, uh, as I said, currently a provost at uh, Union, uh, is involved, is an author, uh, lecturer, preacher, and also has a podcast, which we want to mention, uh, Walking Worthy, which uh, undoubtedly deals with uh, what we want to look at today to some degree, uh, namely the impact and influence of New England Puritanism. So welcome, uh, Dustin. Thank you so much. Well, Dustin, I'm so glad to have you on this episode as Michael and I, uh, we've talked about the Puritans a lot before, and now we get to bring an expert in your book, The American Puritans, 
uh, has been a deeply edifying read for me. And I, I, I actually, you don't know this, but I was almost in my PhD work, I was for some time uh, writing on the American Puritans. So for about the first half of my residency work, I was persuaded that I was, I was going to make a contribution to this field. And then I got into the field and realized there's no way I can make a contribution to this field. There's just been too much written on it. But I love the American Puritans. I love that you've written on them. And uh, I wanted to open with a question, if Michael finds this agreeable. Uh, if you could just take a few minutes and just set up for us, who were the Puritans? Who are we even talking about? Who are the Puritans? And what led you to write a book about not just the Puritans in general, but the American Puritans in particular? Well, thank you both, uh, Michael and Michael, for uh, having me on the the Bead podcast. Um, I always enjoy being welcomed um, by fellow historians and friends who have an interest in the American Puritans, which we could probably have a whole podcast on a discussion of why some think they should not be called American Puritans, uh, while some think that they should still be called British Puritans or English Puritans. Uh, but perhaps we'll save that for another time. Uh, to, to go back and really understand who the Puritans were, we have to go back to uh, probably the ascension of Elizabeth I to the throne in 1558, uh, who really began to reverse much of her sister Mary. Everyone knows her as Bloody Mary, all of her Roman Catholic initiatives. And then out of that desire of Elizabeth's reform throughout um, England uh, came groups of people who wanted the freedom to, to worship outside of that which was dictated by the state. So the term Puritan is not really a nice term. Uh, initially, it was used quite in a derogatory manner uh, in the 1560s, for instance, and came to refer to a, a large contingent of Protestants who were seeking to purify and further reform uh, the Church of England going away from those Roman Catholic influences. Well, within that reform movement, there emerges several groups. One group of what we know as Puritans only desired mild reforms. Uh, another group wanted to only reform the organizational structure of the church, while yet another group completely opposed the Church of England and fully rejected most of the practices of the state-run church. There was yet another group, it's quite interesting to keep track of all of this, that sought complete separation uh, from the Church of England and wanted to form uh, their own uh, government and their own um, way of worshiping. And so it's really from these latter two groups that we find the men and women that we're interested in that we call the American Puritans, who even in the midst of Protestantism, were being persecuted for many of their theological beliefs, and many of them fled to the continent from England, uh, to the Netherlands and other places, and then sought exile in the uh, British colonies in the New World, which uh, eventually would become America. Uh, we just borrow American Puritans from Perry Miller, who said that they were the American Puritans. 
And so having an interest in all of this, um, kind of most of my adult life and educational life, um, I became friends with a, a very dear brother by the name of Nate Pickowitz, who is a pastor in New Hampshire and has benefited from many of these Puritans uh, for the whole of his ministry. Uh, in New Hampshire, he's really growing up in uh, and ministering in that same context of, of New England where many of these men and women settled. And so uh, we began talking one day about these figures in American and church history. And somehow by the end of the conversation, we had decided that there needed to be a book written because these stories are so rich and vibrant just their biographical stories, not even talking about their theological understanding, their governmental understanding, but just their biographical story was so rich that the church, that is the ordinary person sitting in the pew, needed to be aware of who these people were. And so the book examines nine key figures. Uh, it was hard to kind of pick out who we were going uh, to write about. William Bradford, John Winthrop, John Cotton, who was a favorite of Nate's. Uh, Thomas well, Dustin, do you and Nate have to have a real tug of war? Was there some pretty heated discussions about which which ones would make the list? Well, there, there, uh, amazingly, there, there really wasn't um, because he had known about many of these figures I had known about a handful of these figures and some I had I did not even know of. And so I think the really the discussion was who is going to write what chapters. So he took certain people and I took certain people and um, and we wrote about individuals. And then through that, uh, I just fell in love uh, with these men and women, um, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, Anne Bradstreet, John Elliott, Samuel Willard, and Cotton Mather, relatively unknown in church history as well as uh, the American context. Uh, but we wanted to remedy that by writing this book, very beautiful biographical sketches, or that was our hope uh, to really introduce them to the church. Well, I think you really accomplished that, Dustin. So uh, I want to commend both of you for doing that. And of the nine, if I recall, not all are pastors. Overwhelmingly, they are, but there's a couple exceptions to that. So I wonder if you would, if you would agree with this. And Michael, want to see what you think of this too. Uh, David Hall, another Puritan scholar, his work uh, a couple of years ago, The Puritans of Transatlantic History. When I was reading that volume, I was really caught by this phrase or this uh, word that he gave about the heart of Puritanism. And I, I think it's reflected in your book, Dustin, this is why I bring it up. But he says, the heart of the matter, that is of Puritanism as a movement, the heart of the matter was pastoral, the church's betrayal of the people of God, likening these people to sheep who, for want of proper food, were soul-starved. Critics pleaded for action. Something must be done and done quickly to weed out ineffective clergy and replace them with a cadre of real preachers. Was, is that an accurate statement, you think, of the heart of the Puritan movement, one of, of pastoral concern? What do you think, Michael, as you've studied the Puritans? Would you say at the heart of it? Because there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, out there about our caricatures about the Puritans. But at least one scholar, David Hall, says 
the heart of the matter for the movement was pastoral. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. I think, well, I, I think one can certainly characterize Puritanism on both sides of the Atlantic as aiming at pastoral reformation. So we have the, the book, The Reformed Pastor, for example, which has just been released in a, mm. an abridged form by um, Crossway, edited by Tim Cooper, um, who is a, a Baxter scholar. And it really captures what the Puritans were about in many ways. Uh, the, the pastor, uh, by reformed, they meant uh, revived, renewed, uh, reinvigorated, rather than uh, reformed theologically. Uh, obviously, they were reformed theologically, but um, pastoral reformation and renewal was certainly at the heart of the movement. But it was more than that. It was, it was a movement in which... Um, uh, the renewal of the pastor was to to impact the life of the local church. Um, so in that sense, um, Puritanism was a movement of spirituality, um, of spiritual formation. Um, so I, I think I think it is it can be a danger, and partly because the works of the Puritan pastors, etc., have survived. But it can be a danger simply see it to see it through that one lens. Um, so, I mm mean, -hmm. um, of the individuals that uh, Dustin and Nate have chosen, uh, and Bradstreet certainly was not a pastor. Um, was there another individual there who is there? All the, well, Winthrop. Winthrop. John Winthrop. Wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. So I so, think. So more ecclesiological, so maybe more ecclesiological reform, but with, with a, uh, certainly an eye to the re reformation of the pastorate. But you're right, for maybe the bigger goal of ecclesiological reform, of course, purging the church of any of uh, those remaining idols of Catholicism, right? Roman Catholicism. Yeah, I think, but, and I, I'd be interested to hear how Dustin sees this playing out in New England. I think it's more than simply the, you know, the anti-Catholicism, although that is part of it. But in New England, you don't have, Catholicism is not there at all, unless it's in Quebec what we call Quebec now in, in, in uh, uh, French-speaking Canada. Um, so it's, it's more than, it's more than, because I, I think that gives it a negative spin, that this is, this is what the Puritans were against. Uh, but what were they for? I think um, really the statement that, to me, codifies the um, understanding of the American Puritans. And there's lots of discussions on this statement by John Winthrop that he wanted to create a city set on a hill. Um, but if we take that statement and we look at that through a pastoral lens, the Puritans came to the shores of New England wanting a brand new start. And they viewed that brand new start by setting the church in its proper place and their theological understanding, biblical understanding. And it was through that church context and, if you will, that pastoral context that would then transform all of society. And so I, I go back often to what Calvin was doing in Geneva during the Reformation. It wasn't just a reformation of the church. They were seeking to reform politics. They were seeking to reform art, music, mm -hmm. government, philosophy, all the rest of it, literature. I mean, we, we could just go on and on. Education became a huge example within many of these men. 
became a huge example and my favorite among these men of um, educating um, the Algonquin and Massachusetts Indians, as well as um, any slaves that were in that area during this period of time. And so, uh, yes, I think the pastoral concern was pastoral, but yet that could almost be the root of the tree which would have many different mm. branches in all of society, thus creating, in essence, that city set on a hill. It's good, Dustin, you mentioned education, and some of our listeners may not know or need to be reminded, Harvard College was founded, what, 1636? Uh, uh, John Cotton and others, uh, so committed to an educated ministry. I mean, quite sadly, Michael, um, the listeners probably know that most of those early institutions uh, were created from a, um, uh, a theological background, were created by pastors, were pastors were presidents. Uh, you know, even later on, we have Edwards being a president mm-hmm. uh, of newly established Princeton and, and so on. So, so yes, there, there was this strong emphasis in preaching the scriptures but also in educating the people in the scriptures. Hmm. Um, and therefore, as John Eliot, for instance, who perhaps we'll talk about, because in as a footnote, he's my favorite here. Um, he was so concerned about education that he set about to translate the entire scripture, that is Old and New Testament, into the Massachusetts language so that the Indians, the Native Americans, uh, would be able to read the Bible. I mean, Eliot is an American Tyndale, if you will. Mm. And so, um, you know, he sets up schools to teach slave children to read and write, and he's setting up schools among Indian villages where he's also planting churches and training Native American men to be pastors of these churches. And so it's quite different at the moment than what many would like to repaint American history as, that um, it, it it's just a uh, uh, a historical record of barbarianism as, as you know, colonization is taking place and all the rest of it. Well, that's not the example biographically that we have uh, from these men and women as they come into the colonies. Hmm. Which leads me to want to ask uh, both of you uh, about some of the misunderstandings or even the caricatures or the myths that, that are surrounding the Puritans generally and then the American Puritans in particular. Was it H.L. Mencken? Uh, the atheist journalist, uh, mid-20th century, if I recall my dates, that said something about the Puritans, I think I paraphrased, but he says, Puritanism, that haunting feeling that somebody somewhere is happy. <laughs> That's often the, the way people think of the Puritans. Dustin, maybe you could highlight for us, what are some of the misunderstandings of the Puritans out there and how can we yeah. reconsider them? I think that's one of probably one of the major general misconceptions is that the Puritans were dour, joyless people. And we picture them in black with frowns trying to walk around town canceling all fun that people were having. 
But the, the problem is in the modern context, um, the picture that we have of the Puritans is mainly from things like the Salem witch trials uh, or from Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. And we picture these old um, frowny Calvinists who despise fun. Well, that, that's not at all uh, the Puritans I read. All you have to do to cancel out this characterization is to open any of their works and read, and read them. I mean, joy literally seeps from their written words. Joy in knowing God in Christ, joy in knowing the scripture, joy in communion with the Holy Spirit, joy in family and all of life. Um, Edwards, who, who is, of course, outside of our context, but kind of my emphasis, writes copious amounts on joy and how to properly pursue joy within the Christian life. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't just joy for joy's sake or happiness for the sake of happiness in present circumstances. It was this deep enjoyment of God and was directly connected to their spirituality and what I would call true experiential piety. So men, for instance, in England, John Owen, Richard Sibbs, and others sought great enjoyment of God through these grand developments of robust doctrines. And, but they didn't divorce that enjoyment from the means through which it came. Prayer, devotion, church life, Bible reading, the disciplines. Yes, they were disciplined, but yet they had this, if you will, this God-entranced vision of all things that we hear a lot about today. In other words, we will never experience this level of joy, the Puritans would say, if we don't pursue God through the means he has given us to pursue him. So to have this idea that the Puritans were just black-cloaked, frowning guys and women who, who you know, beat people with rods walking through town is just a complete misconception. And so all we, again, we need to do is just open their writings and read of this deep experiential spirituality. That's a really good point, Dustin. Michael, you'd probably agree with that. I, I wanted to bring up something related to that that has to do with a little bit of, of modern historiography with respect to the Puritans. In some ways, those caricatures I think are still being perpetuated a little bit. I think of a recent work by Michael Winship, a fine professor uh, at University of Georgia, but his Hot Protestants, maybe you've read that. Uh, he And he did this earlier with his book, Making Heretics. Uh, he sees Thomas Shepard. He takes aim at a good American Puritan uh, pastor, and he talks about them as uh, well, making heretics or this body of people that were always just looking for people that were doing the wrong so they could judge them. Uh, or more recently, even Francis Bremer, someone who's very sympathetic to the Puritans, fine scholar of American Puritanism, but considers Shepard a, uh, a one who hammers heretics, so the hammering heretic hunter. And maybe you could speak to this, and Michael, you too. I have my own thoughts on uh, there might be a lack of understanding of the reason that we're trying to isolate heresy and wrong doctrine or anti-gospel thinking. To your point, Dustin, I think it was for their joy, for mm. their freedom and grace, for their, um, well, Jeremiah Burroughs comes to mind, the rare, rare jewel of Christian contentment. 
heresy wasn't just something they loved to stamp out as an end in itself, but it was getting in the way of their joy in Christ, their mm-hmm. abundant life, as it, as Jesus talked about it. Would you would you agree? Well, no, I would absolutely agree. Um, I do think that that is slightly a misconception. Um, the The reformers of the 16th century, they are the ones that made popular the biblical theology of justification by faith alone, religious freedom of worship, the centrality of scripture, preaching, all the rest of it. And then when the Puritans came along, they continued those biblical ideas. They built upon those biblical ideas and they fleshed them out as they were. And so, and and how that meshes together with what you've just said is that we, we think of the Puritans as resurrecting doctrines that had previously been hidden. No, they are just building on what the reformers had resurrected during the 16th century. And so if if they are then resurrecting uh, doctrines and not building upon them, then we put them out as heretic hunters and they're looking for those people who may not believe in justification by faith and we're going to stone them or, or bury them up to their neck and throw uh, rocks at their head or whatever. Um, but, but I think it's a misconception of even what the Puritans are trying to do. Again, they're not resurrecting these ideas, but they're building upon them. And they actually believe there was an orthodoxy to protect. Uh, there was a body yeah. of belief that was true. Uh, there is yeah. a true gospel. There is a false gospel or many false gospels. Yeah. But, but in essence, you know, I, I think... I think if any if anything that the, that the Puritans offer to us is is a proper uh, understanding of the Holy Spirit's involvement and the Holy Spirit's work in that yes we are to protect and to an extent defend orthodoxy and defend scriptural truth but that's not our our primary thing that is we don't have to defend it we need to proclaim it and that's what the Puritans are doing they're proclaiming the truth and then expecting the Holy Spirit to, to do his work and to do his job. Hmm. Well, Michael and, and Dustin, I, I'd love to talk to you about uh, the takeaways from the Puritans. Uh, as far as virtues, what are the, uh, maybe, I don't know, lists are always in fashion, it seems, nowadays. Are there four, five, six real virtues we could take away from the Puritans, the things that should last with respect to the movement? I'll let Michael um, come in here. <laughs> before before we move there, I wonder. Uh, I just want. I it was. There's always a chronology issue in my mind regarding the American Puritans. Um, so you mentioned earlier, Dustin, that uh, Edwards is a bit outside your. Like, uh, it, it, would you include him as an American Puritan? Uh, Cotton Mather dies in the late 1720s. So is is he the last of the Puritans? Um, is Edwards a Puritan? Um, in the book you, you've written uh, on American Puritanism, which you know I, I echo um, uh, Michael's uh, comments, um, you probably didn't include Edwards. There's been tons written on Edwards. But could you have included Edwards under the rubric of American Puritans? Well, I think there are two ideas of when we say Puritans. Um, 
one one thought are those groups of individuals that I described at the very beginning, emerging out of the Elizabethan period in England, as well as uh, the American context, um, seeking religious freedom, seeking reform within the Church of England. Well, well, in essence, the Puritans became a derogatory term because they saw it really as a political movement. Now, does that type of Puritanism end? Well, yes, it does. Um, it, it does end. But then, then there's this other thought, this other understanding of Puritanism that is... Um, that ha- that carries along with it a experiential piety, reform theology from the reformers handed down from them, uh, this this beauty of God, this understanding of Scripture, this centrality of preaching, and we could go down through other characteristics. So if we are putting, for instance, Edwards in that second category, then yes, absolutely, he would be considered a Puritan. Theologically, he would be considered a Puritan. He's the heir of the Puritans. We could say we are heirs of the Puritans. Some even say that Charles Spurgeon was the last Puritan, and I've even heard Martin Lloyd-Jones be referred to as uh, a Puritan. And so... There are a couple definitions, I think, that we need to be quite clear on. Um, Edwards was not part of that political movement under um, the Elizabethan period that were seeking reform from the um, Anglicanism that they were uh, coming under. Um, But yet he is carrying that fire of Puritanism and all that they stood for. I wonder, Michael, I love timeline discussions too. I I just taught on this in, in my church history class uh, this week, and I made the case for my students that we should see uh, the end of the Puritan movement in no later than 1690, uh, 1684, the revocation of the Massachusetts Charter. I find that compelling. So as far as looking at a kind of turning point in a movement, that kind of brought all the hopes to an end, what Dustin's talking about there as far as a, as that that political theological effort uh to purify the church but that would that would exclude edwards though wouldn't it so that's that would probably, yeah that, <laughs> yeah that might also exclude cotton mather um, it would it would yeah um who i think is generally described as uh, and rightly included in the book as an american puritan um but so if, if in the definition that uh, dustin gave the latter definition of puritanism then definitely one of the the takeaways is is piety and spirituality, mm-hmm. um, and I think uh, I think there are different streams of Puritanism. This is especially evident in the UK. Uh, I'm not as familiar as Dustin is with the American scene, but uh, there is a stream of of uh, Puritanism in the UK that is very heavily focused on piety, spirituality, and the work of the Holy Spirit. People like uh, Sibs and Owen. But there's another stream that is much more, um, for lack of a better word, law-oriented. Law um, mm. And maybe because of the thinking about reordering society through legal, legal means, people like William Ames and uh, William Perkins, possibly. Hmm. But, would you put um, Baxter in that stream? Where would you put Baxter? No, Baxter is the, yeah, he's very much in the, 
the the kind of Sibs um, okay. Owen, even though he and Owen uh, don't get along uh, theologically. <laughs> no, they don't. they didn't get along either personality wise. They they clashed. I think I think at the root of their theological disagreements was a personality clash to some degree. Mm. But certainly one of the great takeaways I would suspect that Dustin and he can confirm this that Puritanism has for us is spirituality. And the, the yoking together, I, I really liked what you said there, Dustin, about the spirit working through means, um, the yoking together of spiritual disciplines with the spirit. Unlike the Quakers who are in this period, who wanted, in some ways, they, what they want is the spirituality without the means. Uh, mm. They give up baptism. They give up the Lord's Supper. Um, the Bible is important to them, but is is not, they don't see the spirit yoked to the Bible the way that the, the Puritans did, so that they're quite willing to tolerate some very bizarre act, activities which the Puritans found reprehensible. Um, so I think spirituality is one of the big takeaways, and I think that's, that's certainly a drawing card for many today, the robust piety of the Puritans. I love, I was thinking recently you mentioned Owen, and I find him so compelling in this area of spirituality and, of course, sanctification, growth and grace. And Dustin, you'd mentioned it earlier, what people have to realize, all his talk, for example, of mortification or temptation and sin, all of that discussion is coming in the context, I think it's volume six, on the Holy Spirit. Now, that that's instructive in and of itself, that he just sees all this warfare against sin and all this effort to grow in grace, uh, it has to be spirit-enabled. So therein lies the spirituality. It's, it's not a grit your teeth and bear it. It's a independence on the Holy Spirit. Let's grow in personal piety. Absolutely, Michael. I, I think sometimes Christians today, if we could just bring it uh, to the modern context, we tend to compartmentalize our theology and what I mean by that is we tend to we, we tend to view our family life different than our church life and our church life different than our professional life. And uh, everything seems to be in neat little packages. Mm. Um, and we've seen that in the American context recently, you know, ju just simply the question, does your Christianity and walk with Christ inform you? when you walk into the voting booth um, and you cast a vote uh, for president or senator, et cetera. Uh, so we have a theology for family, a theology for work, a theology for politics, a theology for the church, but sometimes they're not connected together. But what I love about the Puritan spirituality that Michael was talking about is the Puritans weave a thread through every aspect of life. So they have a full-orbed, reformed, biblical worldview through which they operate and view all of life. Quorum it's Dale, not, right? Yes, absolutely. It's not compartmentalized, but it's all-encompassing. And they teach Christians today to look through the single lens of God's glory in Christ viewing and discerning all things through the rubric of God's word and having the mindset of the Christian life being a true pilgrimage 
in that we are strangers in this world. And so the, the Puritans viewed everything in the world, science, politics, art, literature, music, beauty, family, church, etc., as being the story through which God is unveiling and revealing himself. And if we viewed life more in this way, we too, I think, would act more like pilgrims in this world rather than full-time residents. And so I think that's a key aspect of what we can learn from the Puritans. Wow, Dustin, I couldn't agree more, and I'm sure Michael does. And uh, you just so eloquently talked about how uh, the Puritans viewed this God-centered life, this living quorum Deo before the face of God, and how nothing was parsed out as if we have these compartments to life. And yet what I want to do now is parse out something you said that I think is a real hallmark of the Puritan movement, something commendable to us, and you said it so well, the pilgrim life. So mm. relate to this, but they, they definitely had an idea of where all human history is moving for the believer. And they mm. took very seriously those biblical terms like pilgrim, exile, sojourner, and mm. maybe the most representative Puritan in terms of casting that vision for life would be, of course, Bunyan and mm. his pilgrim's progress. I mean, mm. that so beautifully sums up the Puritan mindset about we're on a, a, a path to the celestial city. Let's go. <laughs> right? And everything has me. Well, Michael, if I could say this uh, in, con in the context of the American Puritans, you see that most evidently uh, to me, what, what fascinated me about all these men and women was to read about their voyages from the world that they had always known, their ancestors lived, their families lived, etc. And the three and four month voyage that they undertook on various ships from England, the known world, to a place they had never seen, they had never heard from, they didn't know anything about, they knew very, very little in regard to maybe a few letters were getting back and forth, you know, every four to five months. Many of these men and women were, were putting it all on the line. Some had children drown on the journey over. Some lost spouses on the journey over. Some became so deathly ill that they cried forth for God to kill them, basically, on the journey over. In, in other words, you don't do that unless you have an otherworldly view and spirituality. You don't put your family in that context, yourself in that context, unless you are not traveling through this life to the celestial city. And so it was a true call upon their life to begin anew and to begin fresh in a world that they had never seen. And really, it was so much by faith. And so we see something uh, the, of their spirituality just in the voyage. And then we could talk about all the hardships they faced once they got here. Uh, imminent death at every turn. And Anne Bradstreet, uh, in her poetry, really chronicles this struggle on the frontier uh, from a female perspective, which I think is brilliant because she's dealing with 
cooking and farming and and gathering food and children and sick sick parents and sick in-laws and people that are coming to live in their home and and she's she's writing all about this through her poetry and through it all you can just see her spirituality shine one of my favorite poems and i have it framed in my office at home but the vanity of all worldly things by ann mm-hmm. radstreet i just a remarkable woman of god and i would just agree with you there dustin she's so worth uh, resurrecting as as you have and as we should uh, for edification. Yeah. Well, I wonder, brothers, uh, we've talked a lot of, uh, po- we said a lot of positive things about the Puritans. I mean, we, we, we could be criticized for just having a program, a bunch of hagiography. I, we're, just, we're just talking about our heroes and they are worth commending. But I wonder, are there any faults in the Puritans? Are there any cautions with as we read the Puritans, uh, either of you, would you would you say there's there's anything to be uh, cautious about? Yeah, I was going. To, yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, you do have the you know the obviously the the, the obvious one that always comes up, Salem witch trials, which was it's not a it's a very complex event, and uh, Puritan reactions to it are not uniform. Um, but uh, probably another one that is probably raised today. Uh, especially in light of the New York Times project, uh, the 1619 project, which argues that the uh, the foundation of America really cannot be seen through the prism of uh, Puritan New England, but needs to be seen through the prism of the selling of Africans uh, at Jamestown in 1619. Um, I think I think just off to the side, one of the takeaways of the Puritans for any American has to be the fact that although there, I'm sure there would be Southerners who would disagree with this, but uh, Puritan New England sets a tone uh, for the American nation. And uh, there is a stamp upon uh, America as a nation that is, is, is deeply indebted to the city set on a hill, as we call it, or as John Winthrop called it, in New England. I mean, the first... The first uh, uh, overt area of first overt acts of rebellion against uh, British government are in New England, um, and it's those the, the lead given by New England that uh, begins the founding of the American Republic. And so, Puritan New England is is just a from a you know for for any American to understand who are we, uh, you need to understand the, the Puritans in New England for for better and for worse. Uh, the, the area that comes to my mind, though, is and um, uh, the the Puritans uh, certainly set us a great example with John Eliot, um, which Dustin has indicated it was his favorite of the American Puritans. But what about the issue of slavery? Uh, I disagree pretty strongly with the 1619 uh, ideology that the America is from the get-go a slaveocracy. And America has to be interpreted through the lens of slavery. But slavery, nonetheless, is a factor, even in these early days in New England. Um, and I, is, is, that a, is that an issue that needs exploring, uh, Dustin? Um, uh, are, there, are there Puritans who stand out in terms of their opposition to slavery? Um, some of them obviously were agreeable to it, 
but others others would not have been. Yeah, it's that, that's a good question. Um, we uh, there there are a few paragraphs in the book about this. Uh, it, it was not uh, intended to be kind of a political mm-hmm. manifesto. Um, so we're not looking at it from that perspective, but but you know one does have to deal with it because it's part of the history for good or for ill, and obviously uh, the issue of slavery would have been for ill. Uh, just a great moral issue that is a stain upon this period. Um, not only African slaves, but also Indian slaves uh-huh. as well. Native Americans were taken uh-huh. into slavery um, and are forced to work, etc. But, but I think uh, a few of the examples that we have, um, you know, j- just to provide this as a footnote. The only downside of the American Puritans is we do not have their copious works, all of their writings, like we do a John Owen or a Richard Sibbs or people like that. There are very few things that still exist. Now, perhaps Cotton Mather, just because he's much later than some of these early, uh, earlier people, but because of the scarcity of paper, because of the scarcity of the printing press, um, the printing press did not exist in the New World until John Eliot solicited a company in England to send him a press so that he could print the Massachusetts Bible, which became the first book, uh, along with the um, um, Psalms Bay Hymn Book, uh, that was published on on the new uh, in the new colonies, and so we we don't have their writings on a lot of uh, these subjects. All we have is their biographical examples, and what we do see from biographically, for instance, in someone like Eliot, is um, it, it's being said today that the Puritans and others. Uh, did not want uh, the African Americans or the uh, slaves during that period. They didn't want them educated. They wanted to lord over them, and they they just give all this list of stuff. But yet, from Eliot's example, he set up schools for slave children. He was teaching slaves across the colonies to read, to write. He was setting up schools. He was teaching them. He was teaching them the scriptures. He was teaching them basic daily skills, uh, along with teaching them also to be teachers. And so there's this, again, this desire to to reach out in such a way to do that. I mean, you, you don't spend 10 to 13 years of your life translating the scriptures into the Indian language so they can read the Bible if you believe Indians are subhuman. You, you just don't do that. Um, you, you don't do that to the, that extent either among slaves if you believe yourself to be superior and them to be subhuman and not worthy of an education. So I, I think it's through examples like that that we can really tease out what's going on in the American colonies. Are there horrific things that are taking place? Absolutely. I would not dare gloss over those. But are there specks of light that is taking place in this historical context? Yes, absolutely. In people like John Eliot and others. 
The other person I think of here actually is uh, Joseph Sewell, um, who is one of the uh, figures in the Salem witch trials. I forget his role in that. I think he comes in at the end. Uh, uh, he may have been there earlier on. Uh, but he has a sermon, The Selling of Joseph, which is very critical mm. of the fact that slave ships were setting out from New England ports, uh, like Newport, Rhode Island, uh, for example. Um, and uh, he would be, if you did a reprint of um, uh, a second edition of American Puritans, he might be somebody to consider. Um, his dates, mm. I mean, he's basically contemporaneous with Cotton Mather. But the selling of Joseph is a very clear trumpet blast that something is dreadfully wrong, uh, that this is not imitative of the slavery in the Old Testament where God allowed the Israelites to take, to take slaves of people in the neighboring countries. Here are Europeans going across vast stretches of the ocean to enslave Africans, which has no precedent in the, in mm. the, in the, in the, in the Bible. So he might be somebody, again, he's, he's a, uh, He's one who uh, we actually have written text uh, in which there is a protest against what would become uh, a fixture in, on the American and Caribbean landscape um, and so on. Oh, Dustin, I hadn't thought about, you're so right to bring up how we have so many of the works of the English Puritans, but for reasons that you highlighted, we don't mm. have the exhaustive record of what the American Puritans believed. And for example, my my understanding is that John Cotton continued to be mm. very influential from the New World with um, Puritans back in the old in old England, but of course we don't we don't have as you know we don't have sixteen volumes of John Cotton's works mm. as we do John Owen, uh, and for reasons that you pointed mm. out, that's that's interesting, uh, brothers. I don't want to let you go without bringing up a couple other things that Leland Riken talks about. He highlights a few things. You know some faults of the Puritans. What do you make of this? I think we could we could do some some work here, uh, and I'll actually uh, quote Francis Bremer, who says this about about the Puritans' uh, efforts at piety, at sanctification. But he writes, another consequence was that as the path of godliness was spelled out in greater and greater detail, what I mentioned Leland Riken earlier calls mm. too many rules. He says that we, we got to be careful a lot of rules. So Bremer might be agreeing here, saying, as the path of godliness, as piety, was spelled out in greater and greater detail, many of the very people this was meant to reassure began to experience doubts about whether their lives measured up to the high standards being set forth. This could lead to doubt and mm. sometimes despair of assurance, end quote. An unintended consequence, I think, of the, the vigor that the Puritans applied to growth and godliness, but would that be something to watch for in the Puritans? I think so, personally. Um, I think you're referring to uh, Riken's book, Worldly Saints. There's a, a good chapter in that yes. on learning from negative examples, and he's pointing out uh, certain Puritan faults, and they all begin the, with the word to. So um, I think there's... Um, too inadequate view of recreation, too many words, too many rules, too much pious moralizing, and he just keeps going on and on. Um, I, I think there is some validity in that because, um, the, yes, the Puritans were very disciplined people who enjoyed living well-regulated lives. Um, if anyone, we could 
probably the most famous example, um, and I'll put Edwards in here, uh, would be his resolutions, um, his copious discipline rigor. Um, but what's often not said is that I think this was the context of this time period, was living a well-regulated life. Even later on, George Washington has a, a set of similar resolutions uh, that he set aside for himself uh, when he was young in order to ensure that he was making some sort of contribution to the society around him. Um, but sometimes I think this virtue uh, can be carried out so enthusiastically that it can often become a vice of legalism. And I don't accuse the Puritans mm -hmm. of legalism, but it would be very easy to, for instance, personally adopt things like Edward's resolutions and create some sort of context where we think we are pleasing God or gaining favor with God through obeying certain types of rituals and regulations and rules. And so I think sometimes that can be a danger, but most of the Puritans, um, when they are creating these quote unquote rules, which rules ha has a bad kind of connotation anyway. Uh, I don't think that's what they're looking at. They're not they're not having in mind a a uh, a context of legalism. They're trying to get to the point of how can I glorify God the greatest and the greatest way I can do that is by disciplining myself and living that type of life. Well, that's well put, Dustin. I love the way you use the phrase a well-regulated life. And if I could just pick up on American Puritan events, I, I think we really need the Puritans for their rules in a lot of ways today because we're experiencing our mm -hmm. own antinomian controversy in evangelicalism yeah, today. We purposely in did not ways. include Anne Hutchinson uh, because <laughs> I did not want to deal with antinomianism <laughs> in the American Puritan right. context. But we could use a more well-regulated yeah, life, yeah. Christian life, that is, uh, even, you know, with yes. the appropriate cautions. We don't want to uh, undermine anyone's assurance. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's uh, that could be a virtue. I agree. Um, it, wrongfully practiced, it could become a vice. But, well, brothers, anything else you'd want to add about the American Puritans? Uh, that we haven't covered. I mean, I'm happy to stay for another couple hours if you'd like, but I think you're a little too busy for that, knowing the both of you. Uh, any other just American Puritans, Dustin, you would like to highlight? You had mentioned your favorite. Do you have a close second? Or if you were to tell our listeners, here's a couple American Puritans or three that you should really pay some attention to. Well, you'd probably give us nine. <laughs> yes, yes, perhaps just, just buy a book and, and, and uh, read their stories. Right. Uh, again, it's... Um, it's biographical in tone. Um, we're, we're telling a story here, a story that's relatively unknown. Um, uh, John Eliot, of course, is probably emerged as my favorite, as I've said uh, a couple of times, because of his his work among um, uh, the the Native Americans, the Massachusetts and Algonquin Indians, uh, setting up missionary outposts. Um, really. Um, David Brainerd perhaps is remembered as the great American missionary, but it should be John Eliot that is remembered as the great American missionary because um, 
you know, it's from Elliot's work that Brainerd and Edwards and others uh, are doing their works. And if Elliot had not um, built the house, there would be nobody dwelling in it. Um, but yet at the end of his life, and we see something so preeminent about his piety, after he had done all of this stuff, and it was just amazing what he did, setting up Indian praying villages, planting churches, the, a pastor in Roxbury, Massachusetts for over 40 years, the same church, uh, translating the whole Bible into the Algonquin language, writing two books of Indian grammar, creating the first written alphabet out of a spoken only language, the first time that had been done in 1,000 years. And so out of all of this, uh, educating slave children, educating Indian children, at the end of his life, he called him shr himself a shrub in the wilderness. In other words, he said, I'm just a bush blowing in the wind, like a tumbleweed blowing in the wind, that it's God and God's glory and Christ and the spirit that should be exalted here. Um, several of Elliot's sons went on to be pastors throughout the colonies. He died at 85 years old, and his final words were, welcome joy. And I think those two words really encapsulate for me the, uh, the Puritan era. Um, if there's a second, I would say, who's probably one of the most accessible would be Anne Bradstreet. I so enjoyed writing that chapter, uh, looking at her poetry and looking at the ordinary life of what these men and women went through uh, for the sake of the gospel. Excellent. Just a beautiful yeah, story there. Dustin, I can't thank you enough. I think I should speak for you too, Michael. This this is wonderful to have you on the program to educate us about the American Puritans. I hope everybody goes out and buys this book that came out just a year ago. I mean, maybe 2020, right? Yeah. Who knew we would need this stories, these type of stories in a pandemic, um, you know, in, in the midst of all of our struggles and uh, at many times complaints. And I've been reminded of the American Puritans and and how they weathered those storms traveling to the celestial city. And then I've woken up from my little menial things and mask wearing and all the rest saying, I don't really have it that hard. <laughs> so I, I, I need to do better by following their example. Well, I feel like I've been in the company of an American Puritan now, uh, having emigrated to Wales, uh, and a Canadian Puritan, which I, I hope you don't take that as anything but a compliment, my brothers. An American and a Canadian Puritan has made for wonderful company. So thank you both, and we'll look forward to another conversation. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.